Hi, this is Dr. John Ankerberg. I invite you to dig into God's Word today with my dear friend, the late Dr. Wayne Barber, as he leads you verse by verse through the Bible. Joshua chapter 8, and so much of what we've just sung is going to come out as we study Joshua chapter 8 this morning. We've been talking about the incredible journey that we have as believers, and we're comparing it to the journey Israel had as a nation. They had a land, we have a life. And we've been working on this now. This is the eighth part of that series we've been doing out of the book of Joshua. And today we're going to entitle that, Understanding Life in the Will of God. Joshua chapter 8, Understanding Life in the Will of God. Now so far in our series, as we've compared these two, we've looked at several things. Experiencing what you already have, chapter 1, 1 through 5. Facing life in God's strength, chapter 1, 6 through 9. Walking in the water of God's word, chapter 3. Letting God be your legacy, chapter 4. Living as a victor, not a victim, chapter 5. Conquering the temptations that threaten us in chapter 6. And then last week, realizing the peril of unconfessed sin, chapter 7. Well, we want to look at the flip side now of unconfessed sin, to confess sin. We want to talk about understanding how to live in the will of God. What's it like to live in the will of God? But to get into this, let me get you over to John chapter 15 and verse 5. I understand that the young people in their camp this year had a wonderful time studying in John chapter 15. But in verse 5, we're not going to study John 15 today, but in John 15 and verse 5, it helps us get into what we're going to talk about this morning because the new covenant is what we're a part of. And in John chapter 15 and verse 5, we see how important it is to abide in Christ. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Now that's enough right there just to stop, isn't it? He says, he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. And then he makes a statement, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, there are several things about that word abide I just want to bring out so we can understand where we're headed this morning. It's in the active voice, which means this is intentional. A lot of people say to the message of grace, we're in the covenant of grace. There's no intentionality, and they don't even hear it right. Are you kidding me? The active voice is very intentional. It's a choice that we make every day of our life. Verse 4, it says it's a command to abide. It's not an option. Would put into the context of John chapter 15, what he's telling them is, if when you're intentional to abide in Christ, then you are tapping into the power that only he has in you. Now, the difference of a vine and a branch is incredible. Did you know a branch, as far as I understand, was not worthy of, of use, being used of anything except as a fruit rack I mean, for, for God to produce his fruit, to, to bear the fruit. It's the vine that gives the nourishment. It's the vine that gives the strength and flowing into the branch. It means to choose to be his vessel every day, intentionally, allowing his power to be manifest through your life. Yielding to Christ also means, and abiding in him also means yielding to his word. He says that in verse 7. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So when we're willing to abide in him intentionally, intentionally, Come to him for our strength and yield to his power 
in our life, allowing God's Word to direct our lives, that's when we begin to experience what it's like to walk in the will of God. Now, this is not complicated. Every time we talk about it, we try to break it down and analyze it, but it's, it's really not complicated. It sounds wordy when you talk about it, but it's really not. It's simply saying yes to Jesus and to His Word in each and every given situation of life. That's all it is. But we try to break it down so everybody can understand what are the pieces of it. But yet, when it happens, it happens in a choice, in an instant, as we just yield to Him. And remember, it's not a changed life. It's an exchange life. All that we're not as branches for all that He is as the vine. And we allow Him to do now through us what only He can do. This way of living, Paul would call being filled with the Spirit. John would call walking in the light. Jesus would say abiding in the vine. It's all the same thing. You ever notice how the Bible doesn't say seven different things? It just says the same thing seven different ways. <laughs> I guess we're just so thick-headed it takes a little bit more to understand what He's trying to to tell us. Well, the reverse is also true of this. When we're not willing to yield and we're not willing to trust in Him, the reverse is true. And we saw that last week. We saw what unconfessed sin will do. We saw what listening to the reasoning of men would do to bring great defeat in Israel's life. Joshua had sent out the spies to I. Spelled A-I, if you were not here, it's pronounced I, which is so interesting to me. The spies came back and said, hey, this is a little piece of cake. Come on. Pipsqueak City. Don't send the whole army up there. Come on, man. We, we, we just took Jericho. This place is a small place. No sense in doing that. Now, Joshua didn't know that there was sin in the camp. He didn't know what Achan had done. Nobody did. Only Achan. But the pro he still did a foolish thing. Whether he knew it or didn't know it, he still did a foolish thing. He listened to the human reasoning of the spies that had come back and given their own logic as to what they would do, don't send the whole army up there. He never consulted with God about it, and therefore they were defeated miserably. You see, Joshua, before he even knew of the sin in the camp, had already acted foolishly. They were already going to get beat because he didn't do it the way God told him to do it. He acted on wrong information. Some years ago, a passenger train was rushing into New York as another one was coming out. And they hit head on, you may remember. And 50 people were lost. An engineer was pinned under the engine, frightfully injured, and tears running down his cheeks. In his dying agonies, he held out a piece of yellow paper crushed in his hand, and he said, take this, take this, and you, it'll show you somebody gave me the wrong orders. He had acted on wrong information. Boy, you stop and think about that how practical that is to all of our lives. How quickly we think we can handle something because we've been there before. How quickly we do not consult the Lord and how quickly we move too quick, too fast. And, and as a result of it, we're miserably defeated. Well, that's what happened to them. Because of sin in the camp and foolishly listening to the reasoning of men, however all that works together, they were miserably defeated at the little city of Ai. Joshua tore his clothes and went immediately before the Lord, as we saw last week, and blamed God for the circumstance. And what a surprise was waiting on him when God showed him that there was sin in the camp. And after they had dealt with that, the exposure of Achan and the judgment of God that fell on that family, Joshua now ready to listen to God and not just to man, or not to man at all, really, now to listen only to God, they were now ready to experience God's will once again 
for their lives. I don't know how many times people have asked me, Wayne, how do you know God's will? How do you know God's will? And the simplest answer I know how to give them is to lay down your expectations of what you want God to do and be willing to receive whatever it is God chooses to do. The problem in discovering God's will is we're not willing to do it no matter what comes our way, if it's different from our own thinking. Now, God doesn't hide his will in the closet. He's always speaking. problem is nobody's listening. <laughs> and when it comes right down to it, if we would just get quiet, as we heard sung a while ago, quiet before the Lord and begin to listen to him, it's incredible what he's already saying to us if we just pay attention. Well, in chapter 8, Israel is finally ready to step over now and do God's will. And let's look at it. What, what is it like to live in, in God's will? We've seen what it's not like. <laughs> We've seen what, what in chapter 7. But in chapter 8, what's it like? What is life in God's will all about? Well, first of all, there's this right here. God's will will always be accompanied by the realization of his presence. Now, that is, that's imperative for us to hear. It's always accompanied by the realization of his presence. After their defeated eye, one can only imagine the sense of abandonment because they said, where's God? Oh, no, the nations will hear about this. Oh, no, God's not with us anymore. And let me ask you this question. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? You drifted from doing God's will, and all of a sudden, the sense of his presence disappears. And you begin to wonder where God is. You ought to ask yourself, who moved? There are two words in the Greek for the New Testament for the word will. But they're both translated will many times. I remember Brother Sparrow saying many times, well, well if, 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 if the words mean the same, then how come there are two of them? Why didn't they just use one of them? And that's a great argument right there. There are two words translated will, and one of them is boule. And boule is the word that it, it, it does mean will in certain contexts, but it has a weaker word than another word that we're going to look at. In fact, the word boule, the word for wish, it's more the word for wish, and it's translated that way in the New American Standard translation in 2 Peter 3, 9. It says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But there's another word, much stronger word, is the word telema. And telema, that little ma on the end of it, means the result of something. It's the, it's the word that means it's this, what, this is what God had intended, and this is what God took pleasure in bringing about. It's a beautiful word. When God's will, telema, his intention in our lives as we're seeking it, as we're yielding to him and to his word, his pleasure, and when that becomes our priority, when that becomes our priority, then we can expect to sense his presence in our life in a million different ways that he manifests himself. So God tells Joshua in verse 1 of chapter 8, do not fear or be dismayed. And they've just blown it. They have completely blown it. But now they're ready to come back and get her into what God wants. And he says, don't fear and do not be dismayed. And that ought to bring a familiarity to you because we've heard that verse, those words before. The word fear is the word that means to tremble in fear. It has the meaning of to dread something with terror. But the word dismayed means to fall apart. And what he's telling him, don't fear, don't fall apart now. I know you've messed up, you've come back to me, you've reconsecrated yourself to me, you're ready to walk in my will. And he says, don't fear or be dismayed. Joshua heard these words before, and uh, when he was spoken to the people by Moses in Deuteronomy 1.21, it says, see the Lord has placed the land before you, go up, take possession of the land the God of your fathers has spoken to you, 
Do not fear or be dismayed. When Moses was turning the reins of leadership over to Joshua, over in Deuteronomy 31, 8, he says it again. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. These same words were said to Joshua after Moses' death when he took the reins of leading Israel in chapter 1, verse 9 of Joshua. He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you. And as your kid, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The presence of God will be realized in your life wherever you go. Don't fear. Don't be dismayed. When you're yielded to me, Joshua, oh, don't fear. I will be with you. Now at this critical time in Joshua's life, they have blown it at I. And now they've come back and they've recognized, they've dealt with the sin in the camp. And now they're ready to listen only to what God has to say. He says it to him again. Do not fear or be dismayed. Isn't it incredible? God's assured presence now dismisses any need to fear. When you have sensed the presence of God, it drives away fear. Knowing and doing his will, to me, is the most secure spiritual place you could ever be. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean your circumstances are going to change. I'm just simply saying that when you're walking and, and he's manifesting his presence in your life, that's all you want, no matter what takes place around you. Stephen used to say to me when I'd go to Romania during communist days, for three years we went uh, under that communistic rule, and it was quite an interesting story, and that's a book in itself. But Stephen used to say, Daddy, you're going to a communist country, and they hate Christians. And when you go, they're going to catch you, and they're going to arrest you, and they're going to put you in prison, and they're going to kill you. <laughs> I said, thank you, Stephen, for the gift of encouragement that God has given you to give me in this, in this situation. He used to tell me all the time. But I was able to tell him, I said, son, I'm more spiritually secure in the presence of God's will if it's in Romania than I am in my recliner at home watching a ball game on Saturday afternoon. And I said, now, does that mean that God's not going to let that happen? No, that doesn't mean that. But what I mean by that is that we're spiritually secure. You don't ever want to live your life without the manifestation of God's presence. It's God's presence in your life, and he, it's so unique and so precious. And we've so sung about it this morning. That's what you want. It doesn't matter what takes place in your life. It doesn't mean God's obligated to change your circumstances. No. He just lets you know. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Take the next step. I'm with you. I am with you. Joshua 7, the whole attack of I was based on the advice of two spies. God had not spoken. But once unconfessed was dealt, sin was dealt with, and once they were ready to receive God's direction, all fear of what is ahead is removed. Once we hear from God, and once we obey Him, He will join us in defeating the enemy that's around us. It's incredible how that happens. And our enemies are spiritual. You understand that. The power of God's presence in a believer when he's surrendered to do only what God tells him. Israel now could enjoy the victory. Israel, before he went into it again, he already assures them in verse 1 of chapter 8. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, see, I have given it into your hand, the king of Ai, Ai his people, his city, and his land. Wow. He just assures them. Once you're surrendered, that's when, you're, that's when that assurance sets in. 
That's when the presence of God begins to set in. Once you're just willing to do whatever God says and let Him determine the circumstances and trust only His character and to abide in Him, once we get to that place, that's when we don't fear and that's when we're not dismayed. I wonder what God's saying to your life. is. We've been going through this series all summer. What's God saying to you this morning? How far have you been out of God's will? Have you been walking in His presence? Have, has it disappeared in your life? Have you grown weary of listening to the advice of men? Or have you grown weary of that? Instead, you want to come to what God's wisdom is in your life. So God's will is always accompanied by His presence, assured. Secondly, God's will is not always predictable. Now, even though God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, His ways are not our ways. He doesn't always work the same way. You see, he didn't give us a map. He gave us a guide. And that's a huge difference. When you've got a map, it's always going to be from point A to point B. It's going to be the same way. But when you have a guide, it's, it can change. It's going to be different. The Spirit lives in us. So therefore, we must stay close to the Spirit. This is what this yielded part is all about. This is what, is what this surrender is all about. We need to know what God is saying. I was going fishing down in uh, Lake Jackson, Tallahassee, Florida. One of the best bass lakes in the country at that time and it turns over after so many years it's incredible what happens it disappears and it comes back <laughs> and the fish are bigger i don't know get go figure that one so we go down and we get a guide i think it's back in those days it was about 65 bucks a person a day to get a guide and we felt like that's what we want that lake was filled with grass and so there were big huge holes that you had to fish in it's not like going out here to chickamauga i mean that thing was just covered and so you had to know those where, where to fish so this guide he takes us out. He puts us in a good place. Here we are with all of our tools. We brought everything we thought we would need. We had our plastic worms. We had our, our, our crankbaits. Boy, we were loaded. We're good fishermen. We fished Chickamauga. We fished up the well. <laughs> we fished for a while, caught several three and four pound bass. We said, this is a good day. This is a good day. At about 10 o'clock, the guy said, now, boys, are you ready to catch some really big fish? What do you mean, man? We came down here to catch some big fish. He said, well, you're going to have to do it the way we do it, not the way you do it if you're going to catch them. We said, what are you talking about? He took us out to a place with two cane poles. He gave each one a cane pole, and they had little hooks on it and bobbers and put dough balls on the end of it. Now, what's he doing? We came down here to catch bass. I mean, we're bubbas. We're not down here to fish with dough balls and a, and a cane pole. Well, he wanted us to catch shiners, and the shiners were from 10 to 14 inches long, big old shiners. We caught about 25 of them, and he said, is this it? He just sort of smiled. He had them all in his live well. He said, now, let's go catch some fish. We went back to a place, and he rigged us up. Oh, man, he had a bobber on there. It would take a German shepherd to pull that thing under. I mean, it was a big old bobber. And I'm thinking, good, night had to be a big fish to pull that thing under. He says, now, when the fish hits, you have to start counting. And you have to count to at least 25 because we've got these great big shiners on. Man, I remember taking that thing. You have to use two hands to throw it out there with all that weight on it. And whoo, that thing went up in the air and it boosh, boosh. And when it hit, the bobber went under and never came back up. The bass hit it as soon as the shiner hit the water and took off. And my line was just ripping off of my reel. And I started to get ready to crank. And he said, no, 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 no. Count to 25. And I'm going 1, 10, 15. No, he count to 25. And that thing's just stripping line off of there. He says, now crank it down. And I cranked it down. He said, let him get tight. And he pulled it down like this. He said, now let him have it. And I went, 
bam, and when I got about right here, the rod went, whoa, and I'm thinking, oh my, oh my, <laughs> weighed nine pounds, and he said, now, which way would you rather do it, your way or our way? I said, give me another shiner, give me another shiner, <laughs> because when you walk with the guide, you can't determine what the guide's going to tell you. You don't look at it as a map. It's not the same all the time. You, you, you experience something in life. You say, I got that, man. I've been through that before. But God's got something else to teach you. That's why we have to live abiding in the vine. That's why we have to live sensitive to what God is saying. It's not going to be the same every time that he moves in our life. Well, in verse 2, we see something that he chooses to do in I that he did not do in Jericho. He says in verse 2, you shall do to I and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king. You shall take only its spoil and its cattle and its plunder for yourselves. Set an ambush for the city behind it. Now look at the first thing you notice. The first thing is they could take the spoil at I, but they couldn't take the spoils of war, the, the valuable things at Jericho. Isn't that interesting? Listen to me. Listen. If Achan, if Achan had just trusted God, he could have had everything he wanted at I. But he had to take it against God's will at Jericho and pay dearly for it. Think about how many times in your life you've rushed God. You went ahead and got it instead of trusting God to provide it. You didn't really trust him enough. And this is what our country's in today. I've got to have it now. I've got to have it now. Achan, if you'd have just paid attention, everything that God does is good, acceptable, and perfect. If you'd have just paid attention, you could have had anything you want. But he wouldn't wait upon God. God's ways are not our ways. The battle plan for I was also much different than the plan that he had at Jericho. I was a small city, but a fortified one. And in chapter 7, the spies told Joshua to send only 3,000 troops up to I. Now this would mean that their army probably was around 1,000 to 2,000. Now there are 12,000 people going to die in I. But probably their army would have been about 1,000 to 2,000. You say, why? Because you never sent the same number that your enemy had. They would double it or sometimes triple it. You see, they, it was a small, fortified city. Small but fortified. That's what you've got to get. In verse 5 of chapter 7 refers to the gate of the city. In verse 4 of chapter 8, the word city in the Hebrew refers to a fortified city. So what is a fortified city? It has walls and it has a gate. There is another word for a town or a village but there would be no gate. So this is a fortified city with walls and with a gate. Now, I was a military outpost that sat on a hill. Verse 2 mentions going up to I, and in chapter 7, when the Israelites ran from the people of I, they ran downhill. Now, the plan God had to defeat I was totally different than the way he defeated Jericho. I guess they were ready to walk around that city six, one time every day, six days. On the seventh day, let's walk around the seventh time. God said, no way, Jose. Joshua, God told him at night was to choose 30,000 men. 30,000. They sent 3,000 the first time. To set up an ambush behind the city. An ambush. So Joshua, verse 3, rose with the people of war to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 men, valiant warriors, and sent them out at night. He commanded them saying, see, you're going to ambush the city from behind it. Do not go very far from the city but all of you be ready. They were to hide very close to the city. 30,000 men. Now imagine that. It would take quite an area for a city to set up on a hill for these people, first of all, to get, and secondly, how in the world would they, would they hide? 
if the city was sitting on a hill looking at, uh, around everywhere. It's something interesting here, and I won't belabor the point, but there was an archaeologist in our church there in Hoffmantown, and they, they was part of the dig. They have found where they think the city of Ai really was, not where everybody says it is today. And definitely there's a place 30,000 men could be hidden from a city that's sitting on a hill. The second part of the plan was that in verse 5, Joshua would take all the rest of the men with him and approach the city in plain sight. <laughs> 30,000 were hidden on, behind it. But here's, he's just taking that small group with him. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and when they come out to meet us as, as at the first, we will flee before them. Now remember what happened before. They ran from them, and the, city, and the, the warriors ran out of Ai and chased them and slew 30-some of them. Verse 6, they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say, they're fleeing before us as at the first. So we will flee before them. And God had already given Joshua the discernment of this plan. They're arrogant. They've already whipped you one time. And they're going to do the same thing. So go out there and just let them see you. Hey, how y'all doing? And when they when you come out of there, you take off running, and every one of them will follow after you. When, and when they did that, God had already told him, the 30,000 that are behind the city would come into the city, burn the city, and destroy it. It says in verse 7, And you shall rise from your ambush and take possession of the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And verse 8 says, Then it will be when you have seized the city that you shall set the city on fire. You shall do it according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them away, and they went to the place of ambush and remained between Bethel and Ai, on the west side of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Now, there could have been another group, and I personally think there was. A lot of discussion on this. But if we're look at verse 10 through 13. Now Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people, and he went up with the elders of Israel before the people of Ai. Then all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near and arrived in front of the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now there was a valley between him and Ai. So here's Ai sitting on a hill. There's a valley, and they're camped over here in plain sight. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. So they stationed the people, all the army that was on the north side of the city, and its rear guard on the west side of the city, and Joshua spent that night in the midst of the valley. Now some think that Joshua, and I, I, I totally see this, what he did, he put 30,000 behind the city, he put 5,000 that was going to be on the west side, that when the people came out of the gate, they stepped in and blocked them from coming back to the city, and then he had his men over here. But hidden behind the city were 30,000 that was going to go into the city and destroy it. In Joshua 8, 14 through 17, it came about when the king of Ai saw it, that the men of the city hurried and rose up early and went out to meet Israel in battle, just like God said, he and all his people at the appointed place before the desert plain. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. And all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. So not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who had not gone out after Israel. And they left the city unguarded and pursued Israel. Somehow people of Bethel had gotten into the battle. So the point is that the whole strategy was so different. What about walking around the city? And we did that last time. God said, no, totally different day. You've got to pay attention to the guide. God's ways are not always 
man's ways. When we walk in God's will, we must pay close attention to the guide because he doesn't always do it the same way. You ever, you ever been discouraged by that or confused by that? You shouldn't be. There are bracelets, that, little bracelets that people wear. Nothing wrong with them. It says, what will Jesus do? Be careful. You know what Jesus would do? He'd ask of his father, and you can't predict what the outcome of that's going to be. He walked into one city, spit in a man's eye, cured his blindness. Walked into another, put mud in a man's eye. Walked into another place and spoke. And God, what we would do today, we'd have the mudites, the speakites, and the spitites. Was what we would do today. We're trying to do what Jesus would do. We don't know what he would do. Well, Brother Wade, when you were here before, and you were here 18 years, God did this and this and this and this and this, and he's going to do it again. He's going to do better than that, but we've got to pay attention to it. It's not the same day. It's not the same place. God has a different way in our life. That God, God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But his ways are not our ways. And that's why it's so important to abide in the vine, <laughs> to make intentionally sure that you're hearing from God because you're not going to see his manifested presence unless you're walking in the midst of that. Remember when Moses one time, God said, go on up there. And Moses said, if you don't go with us, I'm not budging because wherever I go, I want to know, make sure that you're walking with me. Finally, God's will is divinely powerful. God's will is divinely powerful. Israel had been given a second chance, and I love this. Uh, just because we fail, just because we fall, doesn't mean that God does not allow us to once again enjoy his will. Now, are there consequences? Yes. But that's the mercy God gives us to bear up under them. But God doesn't throw us away because we're broken and we're wrong. I'm so thankful for that. In this world, if something's broken, it's put on a shelf and it cannot be used. But in God's kingdom, it has to be broken before he can even use them. So failure is a tool that God uses. And we can still walk in the midst of his will. The victory that God gives here is a divine victory. Verse 18, then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that's in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. So Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. A lot of discussion on what that javelin was. And so some people think it was a small sword, like a, a, a small spear, a short spear. But some people have suggested it might have been a flag on the end of that thing, like he's standing there with a flag or something that the people could see. And he, until he raised his hand, he left it out there. And they left it out there to, that's yeah, what God told him to do. Verse 19, the men in ambush rose quickly from their place, and when he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they quickly set the city on fire. When the men of Ai turned back and looked, behold, the smoke of the city ascended to the sky, and they had no place to flee this way or that, for the people who had been fleeing to the wilderness turned against the pursuers. When Joshua and all Israel saw that the men in ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and slew the men of Ai. The others came out from the city to encounter them so that they were trapped in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side, and they slew them until no one was left of those who survived or escaped. But they took alive the king of Ai and brought him to Joshua. Now when Joshua had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the field of the wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them were fallen by the edge of the sword until they were destroyed, then all Israel returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. All who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. 
For Joshua did not withdraw his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. And Israel took only the cattle and the spoil of that city as plunder for themselves according to the word of the Lord which he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai, made it a heap forever, a desolation until this day. He hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua gave command and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the city gate and raised over it a heap of stones that stands to this day. Now we say, well, wait, does God do that kind of thing today? No. But just remember something. The way sin is dealt with in the Old Testament, it had to do with the enemies were people, external. We don't have external enemies. We have internal things that we deal with. We have the flesh to deal with. That's why it says to confess and forsake our sin. And when we are willing to do that and come back and say, God, you're exactly right. You've got me right where I need to be. I will confess that sin before you. I am willing to repent by not listening to my own way, but listening to your way. Then we begin to experience God's will afresh in our life. It's a beautiful thing. But only to the degree that we're willing to do what God tells us to do. Well, as a result, they experienced, like I said, God's power. They learned that God's will is always accompanied by his presence. That God's will is not predictable and that God's will is divinely powerful. It's amazing what God wants to do with an individual who's a believer, who's willing to just say yes to the Lord. found this story, thought it might interest you. In a conversation with Professor Samuel Morse, remember who Samuel Morse was, developed the telegraph, Morse code, the inventor of the telegraph, the Reverend George W. Hervey asked this question. Professor Morse, when you were making your experiments yonder in your room in the university, did you ever come to a stand not knowing what to do next? Oh, yes, more than once, he said. And at such times, what did you do next? I may answer you in confidence, sir, said the professor, but it's, not a, it's a matter of which the public knows nothing. He said, I prayed for more light. And the reverend said, and the light generally came? Yes. And may I tell you that when flattering honors come to me from America and Europe on account of the intervention or invention which bears my name, I never felt I deserved them. I had made a valuable application of electricity, not because I was superior to other men, but solely because God who meant it for mankind must reveal it in someone and was pleased to reveal it in me. In view of those facts, it is not surprising that the inventor's first message on the newly invented telegraph was this what hath God wrought and I, you know that's a beautiful picture of what only God can do and I guess the encouragement I want you to see is last week in chapter 7 that's a pretty tough chapter unconfessed sin and how it can affect the whole na- whole church a whole nation it affected in Joshua 7 but on the flip side when we're willing to come back to where we departed Joshua came back to where he was willing to hear what God had to say. And not only that, they dealt with the sin that was in the camp. Then we're wide open to once again enjoy the presence of God in our life and to live in in the midst of God's will. So what's the individual thing we can take home with us today? In every circumstance of life, every one, we choose to let Jesus be Jesus in us. We choose to abide in him. We choose for his strength and power, not our own. We choose to, uh, to uh, adhere to his word, and we say yes to him. And as we do, all of this rest begins to take place.
His manifested power is incredible. I don't know, that's, a, that's such an encouragement to me today to know that God gives the grace to transform us, but he gives us the mercy to bear up under whatever it is we've messed up in. But he still allows us to walk in his will. Isn't that incredible? He let Israel do it over and over again. If you don't believe me, study the book of Judges and you'll see it quickly. How forgiving and how merciful and how graceful God is in our life. For additional resources or to view our TV program, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.